Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath. It's the holiday season, in case you haven't noticed it, unless you're pretty stressed. And guess what? Family and relationship conflict increases at the holidays, which is why I've invited Nicole Garten, a lawyer at Heritage Law and president of Heritage Trust. In her dispute resolution practice, Nicole focuses on the restructuring of families resulting from separation and divorce. She also focuses on wills and estate issues and family business. Good evening, Nicole. Thank you so much for coming into the studio to talk about this very important issue. Thank you for having me. Now, oftentimes these issues result in legal issues for families. Uh, You're dealing with parents and children and the holidays and the stress increases. What do you recommend or what do you see in your practice um, that is significant that can impact the structure of the family? Well, for family lawyers, we all know that the first and second week of January is sadly one of the largest intake weeks of the year. So (laughs) whatever it is that's happening over the holidays, uh, it seems to precipitate a lot of calls to family lawyers in in the new year. And I, I think with the holidays, I think there is the stress of so much to do, little time. I think there's financial pressure. And I think there's societal expectations that things are going to be so perfect. And and then when faced with that, you know, pressure of finances and time and expectations, I think it can be very difficult for families and certainly in marriages, but also in terms of elder issues with, uh, you know, the sandwich generation where you've got teens at home and older parents to take care of. And quite often women are shouldering a lot of that work. They certainly are. And, uh, you know, with the stress of the holidays, if, you're, if your marriage isn't solid or your relationship isn't solid or your family life isn't solid uh, with your siblings or your extended family, your parents, that can increase to the difficulties that people face, which is maybe why you're not only extremely busy now at the holiday season, but very busy uh, at the first of the year as well. So no rest for the weary, I will note, <laughs> um, which is tough. But uh, so what do you suggest to uh, parents or individuals or couples who are facing some of these issues and, and maybe are looking to restructure their families? Well, I think, I mean, if we're going to talk about conflict prevention, I think the best thing to do is open and transparent communication and, you know, trying to get in front of these issues before they um, get difficult. In terms of a family business, a lot of the things that prevent uh conflict are things like governance. So that's things like assessing what your values are, you know, working together as a family to get a sense of what a successful future vision looks like and doing lots of preventative work in terms of trust building and communication and trying to see issues in advance and work on them rather than then avoiding and then having things blow up in a crisis way because it's much more difficult to resolve things after the fact than if you get in front of them at the start. It, it certainly is. So get ahead of things. Um, get ahead of the story, if you will. Um, but oftentimes people are so incredibly hurt. Their feelings are hurt. They build up resentment. They may despise their spouse. They may actually use the children as pawns. Um, are, what do you think of these taxic, tactics? And do you involve anybody else on the team uh, to assist you in helping uh, couples deal with their emotional health at this time? Because it can be quite charged. Well, I think I think the first thing is is to normalize those emotions and Conflict is a natural part of life, and conflict is inherent in every relationship, even intact and successful marriages. So the fact that you're experiencing conflict is normal, and in fact, conflict can be transformative in that it, it can be a creative force, and you can, if you move through a conflict effectively, you can actually build trust and rapport and actually have a stronger relationship on the other side. So I think just 
at the outset, the fact that you're feeling anger or resentment or you're, you're, there's high levels of conflict or fear or anxiety, those are natural, normal human emotions. And, and it's not necessarily that there's anything wrong with you or even potentially a relationship. There are ways to resolve through this in a positive way. Um, in terms of a family law matter, uh, if if a family decides that they're going to restructure, if they are going to separate, you can often work in a multidisciplinary team. So, um, for example, in collaborative family law, there's lawyers that can work on the financial piece. And then there's coaches, which are mental health professionals that can help people work through their grief, work on communication, work on parenting. And sometimes there's financial experts. So they're neutral people that will help the family restructure their finances in the most tax efficient and sort of creative way possible. So is there uh, such a thing as a good divorce? Um, is it And is it worthwhile for people to get the help they need early on in order to divorce well? And who benefits when a couple decides to split, separate, or divorce well? I think that's an interesting question. I, I think you can have a good divorce. I think, though, it's good to be realistic. I mean, divorce is, is very difficult. It's financially difficult. It, it makes parenting more complicated. Um, you know, th- there is a, a nuance to divorce too, in that there is a stat that forty percent of marriages won't reach their thirtieth anniversary. But the reality is, the majority of people that divorce are people that have lower income, lo- lower resources, or less support. And so, those are the marriages that are ending quickly. And so, these are stressed people that don't have resources around them. And then, unfortunately, that cycle can perpetuate because they're raising kids then in a household with less resources and and then those adults are more likely to divorce if they were children of divorce. So I don't I think divorce itself if it's done correctly can be fine. Generally the data is actually quite funny. People stay the vast majority of people stay pretty mad at each other about 20 about 2 years after and then most people sort of have functional relationships after that. About 10 to 15% of people though the data shows stay with high levels of conflict. And that the longitudinal study shows that's actually what's damaging for children. So if you look at a meta-analysis of children, they've been studying kids of divorce since the 1970s. The vast majority of kids, about 85%, show no statistical variation from the mean. So there's no difference between children whose parents have divorced versus parent, kids whose parents have stayed together. About 10 to 15% do show difference. It's not huge, but it is statistically measurable. And the social science researchers think those kids have been exposed to long-term conflict. And that has been the adverse input. And so if you if you are going to decide to restructure your family, then the best way to do it if you want to protect your kids from harm is to try to at least compartmentalize your kids from the conflict and and try to come up with a functional relationship where they're not being exposed to to that because that is apparently quite damaging according to the data. Wow, that's that's excellent. I actually don't think I've ever heard anybody say that before. I mean, we've certainly seen that, and I mean, I, I've witnessed that, um, you know, with uh, people in my clinical practice or even friends who have divorced and have remained in high conflict for mm-hmm. a number of years afterward. Their their children have suffered emotional health issues and mental health issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine they can suffer physical health issues as well. Um, wow, I'm, that's that's uh, great advice, actually. So um, if you could wrap it up, um, what would you say to couples out there navigating the holidays and the conflict in their relationship who are looking to restructure their family? Well, I think, I think the thing about the holidays is I think it's just being realistic in that I think everybody has this 
this view that everything has to be so perfect all the time. And I think, and certainly, I mean, I'm a lawyer and, you know, a lot of people in my office are going through issues, but the vast majority of people have family issues, health issues, financial issues. And I think it's being realistic in terms of we all have challenges and don't have expectations that things have to look like a movie or what people are posting on social media because the vast majority of people are just like them. And and I think if you're realistic of, of that, and the other thing is, you know, conflict is normal, you know, and the other thing, I think I, the last thing I want to say about kids in conflict is, is when kids see parents in conflict that's then constructively resolved, that is actually positive because they can see conflict as normal, natural part of life. It can be resolved in a healthy way. The conflict that's actually negative to kids is long-term and child-focused. That is excellent advice. Thank you so much, Nicole Garten. She is a lawyer focused in on restructuring families, wills and estates. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath. This particular time of year can be lonely for a lot of people. Other people can feel alone, even if they are in a relationship. Well, that's why I have invited Leanne Francis Bates, the intimacy authority. She talks about love, fulfillment, and influence, lasting love, powerful relationships, enduring passion. She's also a keynote and an inspiring speaker and a facilitator. And she joins me on the line this evening. Good evening, Leanne. Thanks so much for joining me. Hello, Maureen. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So great to have you. I'm, this is such a common subject that I see in my clinical practice. I've had a number of couples in uh, just leading up to the holidays, how they're in relationships and yet they feel lonely. They lack the intimacy. The importance around intimacy doesn't seem to be a part of their daily routine. They put other things ahead of themselves. Is this something that is dangerous that you uh, see when you um, educate or, or speak in terms of uh, intimacy? How important is it? And can people feel alone in a relationship? Wow, yes. What a, what a powerful question. People can feel alone in a relationship. And um, I know from experience, a lot of couples or singles that are one person, I shouldn't say a single, a person that's, you know, one individual person in a relationship will come to me and they will say, you know what, I don't know what's going on. I feel disconnected. I feel, you know, uneasy. I'm just, you know, there's something missing in my relationship with my partner And, you know, we'll talk and they'll say, but I don't think it's loneliness because you can't be lonely in a relationship and you, you really can be. Absolutely. What I hear a lot of in my clinical practice is men who will say, I always initiate, I'm getting all my questions out to you, Leanne, (laughs) on Uh, behalf of my patients. They say, I always initiate, she never initiates. And it can be the other way around. I realize that. And as a result, I feel unloved lonely, and it leads to mood issues and even depression. So how important is it that it's, it's a mutual intimacy? Oh, I think it's really important. I think like everything, there's a natural balance that we, we look to find in a relationship, right? And that includes both partners initiating in some way, Sometimes I find that partners are initiating in different ways, though, that the other one doesn't always understand or that they just need something extra in the relationship to feel confident in initiating. So that's worth exploring. 
I, I definitely can see that because some people can have the perception like, you know, I'm cleaning the house. I'm working outside of the home. I take care of the kids. I fill out all the forms. You know, that's all for you. But then he's like, well, I just want to have sex with you. And then she's, nope, forget it. Too tired, um, which is a common song that I hear um, in my clinical practice, even to the point of some women will say, go and find it elsewhere. I want to have my uh-huh. family intact and I want to have my relationship intact. I want it all to look pretty uh, on the outside, but you know, you go and do whatever you like and just don't tell me. But, th- but I understand as you do that there's risks with that, but we're talking about loneliness. How dangerous is yeah. loneliness for people emotionally, mentally, and physically? Well, you know, studies are showing us that it's actually quite dangerous, um, you know, and then the numbers are at epidemic proportions right now, but it leads to depression, it leads to addiction, it leads to anxiety, it leads to, um, you know, all sorts of health issues. Literally, um, you know, when they looked at it, loneliness itself kind of inflates and increases the risk of almost every single kind of medical condition you can have across the board. And and one of them is, I know that it increases peripheral vascular resistance, which places more um, pressure and stress on your heart and, and your brain. And people are mm-hmm. actually at greater risk of stroke. And that's the last thing you want to be doing um, is taking care of your partner after they've had a stroke and, and especially something that could have been prevented. So these are people who are in relationships that are lonely. How about people who don't have somebody in their life and they feel lonely? Uh, how do you deal with those people? Well, you know, I mean, that's where they need to go and actually seek to create intimate relationships. And I think the biggest challenge these days is that a lot of us don't know how to create actual intimacy in a relationship, create the deeper connections that actually lead to a fulfilling connection that we can have in person that will actually um, help with loneliness. Um, also, you know, you can do other little things, um, you know, you can get a pet, you know, the SPCA has lots of rescues this year, that's been shown to be very useful. And, you know, to be able to create that intimacy with someone else, you need to have a good relationship with yourself. So where it really starts is with yourself, building a really good relationship, and then moving outward for that connection, and building a relationship with somebody else. So it doesn't necessarily mean uh, to combat loneliness. It doesn't mean you need to be in a relationship. You can perhaps give of yourself is what I'm understanding you're saying and, you know, share the love. And how much of attraction plays into this? And I'm going to be talking a little bit later to a matchmaker. Um, But how much does attraction play? So putting forth your best self, are you you more likely to uh, be to meet somebody, to meet friends, to meet people, to deal with the loneliness. Uh, how much does attraction have to do with um, helping the loneliness? Is that your question? Yeah, but but actually being your best self. So instead of feeling sorry for yourself, mm. going out there in a negative way, oh. you know, being upbeat and positive <laughs> and, and being somebody that, yeah. you know, someone's interested in. So it's not all this whole pity party going on. Yeah. Yeah, people love your best self. When you come out as your fully authentic self, people are really afraid that they're going to get rejected. And let's be honest, not everyone's your cup of tea. Some people aren't going to feel you. But the thing is, is the people that are going to are going to be so much more attracted to you. If you're wearing masks and hiding yourself and pretending like, you know, you, you don't like the things that you do or you're not really the person that you are, 
people are going to be able to sense it. We have sort of an intuitive sense when someone's hiding something. And when we feel that sort of misalignment in someone, we're not really all that attracted to them usually. When someone is really who they are, you absolutely are way more attracted to them. Absolutely. And, and being genuine, being a genuine, real person, one who's had troubles and struggles and issues and, and being able to say that and deal with it and overcome it and accept others. So not judge others, I think is important as well. Um, you did a fantastic talk on loneliness recently for the Get Inspired Talks. How can people access that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes, they can go on to YouTube to the Get Inspired Talks channel And on there, they'll see um, my talk, Loneliness and Achieving Great Connection. And actually, they'll find your talk on there as well, Maureen. Oh, not not nearly as good as yours, I tell you. But thanks for mentioning that. But yours, I think, was the the star. Um, It was a fantastic talk, and I think it's a big issue today um, in many lives, in relationships, uh, whether it's with yourself or with somebody else. Leanne Francis Bates, the Intimacy Authority, thank you so much for joining me today on the Sunday Night Health Show. Absolutely. Thank you. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath. If you're just joining me now, we were just talking about loneliness, but you might be out there thinking, loneliness? I'm lonely. How do I meet somebody? Well, That's why I invited Annie Cranfield into the studio. She is the matchmaker extraordinaire. Her website is thematchmakerclub.com, and she is going to tell us how you can meet somebody. Good evening, Annie. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Maureen. I love being here. Oh, that's so great. All right. Well, I think this is an important issue. Lots of lonely people out there, lonely hearts clubs popping up left, right, and center. Um, so you're a matchmaker. First of all, tell me, what is a matchmaker? And, and it kind of seems, uh, dare I say, old school or so yesterday, but it apparently not. It is. It is kind of old school, but it's actually making a comeback. More and more people want to meet face-to-face rather than online dating. So it's definitely a business that's growing. That's fantastic. So instead of people, maybe people have gone online and they've decided that they did not want to hook up with the tsunami of people out there one after another, the smorgasbord, they decided they wanted to maybe streamline the process, make it a little bit more personal. So they call you. Exactly. So how does this program work? So the way that it works, it's usually... uh you know, the people who call me really do value their time. It takes a lot of time to swipe left, you know, go through the profile, set your profile. So the people who hire me are, they usually value their time, you know, they're professionals. And I customize a search for them. You know, there's no cookie cutter when it comes to what you're looking for. Um, And so they hire me and I literally go out and find somebody for them. Now, might you already have somebody in your cache for them? Yes. So you have a number of people kind of, I guess, in your matchmaker club. For sure. Yes. the matchmaker club. That's right. And so you might meet somebody and think, huh, I got somebody for you, which is kind of the nice way to meet people and and the way it was done in years past. Exactly. And that's that happens to me sometimes. I'll meet somebody thinking, okay, they might be perfect for this person, but once I actually meet them, 
might think, okay, no, this isn't a match, but I already know them. And it happens to me often that I'll meet somebody and not necessarily be for the person that hired me, but a couple months later, even sometimes weeks or days, I'll meet somebody else and I'm like, wait a minute, I already met somebody last week. That would be perfect for you. Right. Now, I sometimes, I mean, I know a lot of people (laughs) I get around and uh, (laughs) I am no matchmaker, but I like to play one (laughs) in the suburb where I live. (laughs) And uh, so I will say to people, I've got somebody for you. And they'll say, you know, are they, oh, are they good looking? And I'll be like, I don't know. You know, that's up to you. (laughs) Totally. And so really, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Yes. And I think that's an important thing here because oftentimes people will say, I'll say, you know what, I'm going to fix up. I actually have a friend. Andrew. (laughs) I'm going to fix Andrew up all the time. But Andrew was having a hard time getting over his ex-wife. Right. So he's over her now, uh, which is great. Uh, So I I said, you know, I I told a friend, I'm going to fix Andrew up with so-and-so. And and the friend said, no, never, not her, not her. But somebody else can't really decide for you. But you have an expertise in this field. Yeah. Honestly, I have to say, setting up friends, sometimes it's a little harder for me, even being a matchmaker, because you know them so well. You know, when somebody hires me, I can be really... um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Kind of like not detached, but see it more uh, pragmatically than I would with a friend. So, you know, maybe that's why when you're setting up your friends, everyone's like, no, not them, not them. It gets more complicated. But with a matchmaker, also when I sit down to talk to somebody, a lot of things come up with me. It's kind of like a therapy session. Sometimes they don't even tell their closest friends. So I get to know them in a in a safe sort of environment. They tell me things. So I'm able to really understand what it is that they're looking for and why that's important for them. Right. And you know, you make a great point because I kept going to my friend and saying, um, I'm, I've got somebody to fix you up with. And, and um, he'd say, oh, fantastic, wonderful. And he'd never follow through. Mm-hmm. And so after about three or four people, he finally said to me, you know what? I'm ready now. I wasn't a month ago, but I didn't tell you. But, yeah. you know, something else had happened yeah. um, that made that helped him to get over his ex-wife. And um, and the other thing is that um, the person I do want to fix him up with, I don't really even know her either. <laughs> <laughs> she could be a hardened criminal <laughs> for all I know. Hopefully not. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> I don't know her, but I just met her. And she's like, you know, it's so hard to meet people. And I'm like, I have someone for you. I have Andrew. (laughs) So um, so it might work out. It may, but no, it hasn't gone anywhere. (laughs) It never works. That's why I think a matchmaker is a much better way, because as you say, you are detached. So do you have any stories of success that, uh, that you'd like to share? Honestly, I feel like every client is a story of its own. And I have many stories, but I do have one in particular speaking about Andrew. That's why it comes to mind. (laughs) Because there are times when somebody approaches me and they're recently divorced. You know, they haven't dated in the past 15, 20 years. And it's really overwhelming at the idea of, you know, do I do online dating? Where do I go? So sitting with me became really a therapy session for him. I mean, I was able to give him a different perspective that he might have not had in this new current age of dating. I mean, he was really unaware of all of the things. Um, So honestly, it became a really nice friendship with him because I was able to sort of guide him through the process. And so at the beginning, you know, I would set him up with dates and I get to learn a lot from my clients post date because I call 
uh, both parties and kind of get their individual's perspectives on how the date went. So as I went along, you know, he started to learn more about himself and how he was on a date. And eventually I did match him up with someone. And right before I left to Melbourne, he's like, hey, just so you know, I may marry this woman. Wow. Yes. And so I still actually keep in touch with him. They haven't gotten married, but, you know, it's only been a year. But they're still together. They're still together, yeah. Yeah, isn't that great? And it's nice when it works out nicely. Um, You know, because a lot of people think they'll never meet anybody. And and first of all, maybe they don't like online dating. Yeah. And I have a question for you about online dating and, and matchmaking. Do you actually take kind of a full history on these people? Like, are they in good medical condition? I do. You know, I do have a questionnaire. And so I do ask all the questions mm-hmm. that I should be asking. Um, but it's also a trust process. You know, right. they trust me. I trust them. I also can't, you know, I've had some crazy things thrown at me, which I don't even know if I can say on the radio. But there are some things that I just need to let the other person you know, like a like a normal relationship, find out through right. the process. But I do ask about STDs, um, you know, any medical conditions. Aside from that, it's like, well, you know. And I just want to say, guys, erectile dysfunction is a medical condition, okay? Oh, so I hear from a lot of women. I haven't women, asked that. They will say, you know, they meet men online, and they're like, these men have in their 40s and 50s really? and 60s, they have erectile dysfunction. So they're like, can you actually do a public service announcement? <laughs> Well, no one's ever, I've never asked that. I've never asked that. You may not, but just just under the the general umbrella of of health conditions. Do you have a health condition? And, you know, the show is about education. And, you know, uh, erectile dysfunction is a canary in the coal mine. It can signify Mm. cardiovascular disease or diabetes or or hypertension. So it's important that you see your doctor. Um, We're going off track there. But um, (laughs) anyway, so um, how would people get in touch with you? Um, and you have a number of different um, packages, and so yes. there's something for everybody yes. here, which is what I like, yes. because I think out in the world there's somebody for everybody. I agree. I actually think there's more than one person, you know. Probably. That for sure. Look, at we have so much access to people nowadays. There's not just one soulmate. I think there's many different soulmates, you know. You can have one in Paris, one in London, one in Vancouver, maybe more than one in Vancouver. It's just about meeting the right person at the right time in your life, and that's who you want to connect with. Exactly. So how would people go, um, how would they find you, first of all? So I'm on LinkedIn. That's a good way to find me. Also, my website, thematchmakerclub.com. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. You can literally just type in my name and that should pop up. And and what are some of your packages that you have? How does it, you know, how different are they? So they are fairly customized. Um, you know, I have my premium package, uh, which is for a year. I usually tend to suggest that when somebody hires me out of Vancouver. So I've had clients who are, you know, they go to Vancouver, Calgary, Toronto. So obviously that's going to be a little bit more work. And then I have my six-month package, which is usually the most popular one. Um, That I think is a really good length of time for me to find somebody appropriate for you. Uh, And then I also do some coaching on the side when it comes to online dating. Um, So yeah, it's 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 really all customized. And I love your process. The meet, the search, the date. That's right. Annie Cranfield, the Matchmaker Club. Thank you so much for joining me this evening in the studio. Thanks so much. I am Maureen McGrath, and you're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath. 
talking tonight about menopause. There is a tsunami of women going through menopause. And if you have made it past 50, chances are you too will experience menopause. Joining me on the line is Teresa Isabel Diaz. She improves quality of life, relationships, and work of women in perimenopause, menopause, and beyond. She's a women's health advocate, a speaker, a trained pharmacist, and a NOMS certified menopause practitioner. She is the proud founder and CEO at Menopause Ed. Good evening, Teresa. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Let's just give a little background about menopause. There's so much confusion around premenopause, perimenopause, menopause, postmenopause. What does it actually mean? We don't seem to be saying the change of life anymore. So what is menopause? So menopause is the end of ovarian function. So it's when your ovaries no longer release an egg, therefore you don't have ovulation and you will not have a period anymore. You're no longer fertile. You can no longer get pregnant. So that's what menopause is. It's just the end of ovarian function. And so how would a woman know that she is going through menopause? So before menopause, because the ovaries don't shut down in a one-off event, uh, they kind of start slowing down and changing the way um, they function for a few years before, prior to menopause. Women may experience uh, several symptoms, and the most common one is changes in their menstrual periods. So if they were regular before, they may start having shorter or longer periods, may start having uh, lighter or heavier periods, and that's usually the uh, first sign that the ovaries are changing. And that's the time leading up to menopause, and that's called perimenopause. And what age would a woman, uh, might a woman begin the perimenopausal symptoms? So it varies from woman to woman as it does uh, uh, the symptoms and the age, but some women can start feeling changes in their late 30s or early 40s. And that thing, I think this is one of the myths for menopause that it's considered to be an uh, old lady's disease when in fact it can start in the 30s or 40s and it's not a disease at all because all women will go to menopause. All women will have Uh, the ovaries uh, stopping their function eventually. And in North America, the average age of menopause is 51. And so what does actually, what actually does that mean, the average age of menopause? That means that somewhere between um, 45 and 55, uh, the majority of women will have no more periods. And and Um, most women... Is there a particular time period that a woman should be without a period that defines menopause? So, yes, because periods change in perimenopause and women may go for several months without having one and then having another one and so on, someone had to define a number where you could look back and um, define menopause as the last menstrual period. So how do you, find, how do you know it's the last? When you haven't had a period for 12 consecutive months, you said to be in uh, menopause. And, or you become postmenopausal, I, I guess. 
And after that, you're in postmenopause for the rest of your life, yes. Right. And so what are some of the common symptoms that women experience during the, the years leading up to the menopause uh, or during those perimenopausal years? So the most commonly known one I think that uh, most women are aware of are hot flashes. And hot flashes that uh, happen during sleep are called night sweats. And those symptoms together are sometimes uh, referred to as vasomotor symptoms. But what's less known is um, other symptoms. So many physical, cognitive, and emotional symptoms happen in perimenopause. And it's common for women to uh, report uh, difficulty sleeping, either falling asleep or staying asleep, Um, problems with mood swings, and anxiety and feeling um, feeling off, not feeling themselves. So some women also complain of um, lack of concentration, memory problems, forgetting a word. Um, some women complain of um, headaches more often than um, before. Um, and there's a few others. There's, there are people that say that are 34 symptoms of uh, impairing menopause, but those are the ones that I uh, usually uh, hear women report more often. Now, and some women also suffer from uh, some women. Sorry, some women also complain of pain. Um, pain uh, is an uh, uh, itchy, itchy skin are also uh, reported by women in perimenopause. Right, I've heard that myself. Um, now. Uh, will every woman who goes through menopause experience symptoms, or can some women get off scot-free, if you will? Oh, yes. About 20, the statistics say that about 20% of women still ride through menopause without having major complaints. So that leaves 80% of women with some form of uh, symptoms that may affect the quality of life, may affect the quality of relationships and their work. Now, I want to go a little bit below the belt here, as I usually do on this program. Uh, Vaginal dryness, not really talked about. It's a taboo subject um, and genitourinary syndrome of menopause. So women may experience vaginal dryness, painful sex, leakage of urine uh, associated with the perimenopause, menopause and postmenopause. There are certainly treatments for that. Um, Why don't we uh, consider that uh, or why is that less known um, compared with hot flashes and night sweats? as a symptom of menopause, and does that ever go away? Uh, that's a very good uh, point. I don't know why we don't talk about vaginal dryness as easy as we talk about runny noses, for example. I guess it's a society um, stigma, or not stigma, a, a taboo. We don't talk about those things, but it's unfortunate that we don't because 40% of women report vaginal dryness with pain with sex, and even women that do not, uh, that are not sexually active, can suffer from vaginal dryness. And most of these women do not talk about it. They do not talk among themselves with their friends and their family. They do not talk to their doctors about it, which means that most of them are not treated for this condition, which is unfortunate too because. There are some things women can do to treat vaginal dryness and improve uh, sexual pleasure, but we don't talk enough. And I think women have to um, own their health and be their own health advocates. And women that suffer from vaginal dryness and all these symptoms we're talking about should bring it up at the doctor's office. 
if the doctors don't ask for it, which is also a problem because most doctors do not ask about uh, women about their vaginal health. Absolutely. So women should women should ask the doctor. It's a, it's a problem I hear. It happens to uh, women once estrogen levels decrease. I'm feeling a bit of pain. I'm feeling a bit of dryness. What do you suggest I do? It's as simple as that. And you make a great point. Sexually active women or women who aren't sexually active, but it will certainly not only dry up your vagina, the reduction in estrogen receptors, but it will has the potential to dry up your sex life or your love life. Um, thank you so much for joining me on the program today. You also do online consults, um, Teresa. Tell me a little bit about that. So I don't want to be restricted uh, geographically. I want to help as many women as possible. And my mission is to raise awareness and provide education. And that's a starting point. But once you know what's going on with your body and if a woman has um, challenges in menopause that most doctors don't address because of such lack of um, information about menopause, I do online consultations, so I do one-on-one consultations with women that need more help to um, reduce the symptoms and improve the quality of life. Wonderful. And I imagine they can book those appointments at menopauseed.org. Uh, yes. Wonderful. Teresa Isabel. Yes, they can. Teresa Isabel Diaz, NAM certified menopause practitioner. Thank you so much for joining me on the line this evening. Thank you. It was my pleasure. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath hosting this program. My goodness, the holidays are fast approaching. And if you're anything like me, you're probably a little bit worried because you don't have any everything done. Well, imagine what the holidays are like for individuals who have been diagnosed with adult ADHD or ADHD in childhood. This time of year can be incredibly stressful and chaotic because there are so many things on the list. Well, joining me on the program right now is Dr. Gurdeep Parhar. You've heard his voice before on this program. He is medical director at Adult ADHD Center in Vancouver, British Columbia and Burnaby, British Columbia. He's also a clinical professor at the University of British Columbia. Good evening, Dr. Parhar. Thank you for joining me to talk about this. Oh, thank you for having me on, Maureen. Well, I'm so glad you're here because, you know, Christmas is about making a list and checking it twice. Some of us have to check it a little bit more than that. Um, So tell me, what are some of the biggest issues you see with adults in your clinic um, that have to deal with the holidays? Just the regular time of year can be stressful, organizing and dealing with executive function. So how is it that people with ADHD can approach the holidays and what are some of the issues that they have? Thank you, Maureen, on all great questions. As you've already alluded to, even those of us who don't have ADHD um, find that there's a lot of stuff going on over the holidays. December, January are quite hectic anyway. So now add to that layers of people who otherwise have difficulty staying organized or have challenge with focus and attention. So when we think about the holiday season, we think about you know a lot less structure. There's holidays, so you know, for example, children aren't in school eight hours a day. Adults are off work and aren't at work six or seven hours a day. What that means is that you've got you know, big, big chunks of time that aren't structured. And people with ADHD, whether they're children or adults, they do best with structure. They need schedules. They need routines. And so the holidays in general are a bit more chaotic. Now add again to that all the extra activities that happen over the Christmas and December period. There's lots of activities, 
lots of excitement, um, lots of stimulation going on, and we're interacting with people. You know, we are often traveling ourselves, so you've got travel plans organized in there if you're going away for the December or January holidays. Um, there might be guests visiting. All of a sudden, there's extra people in your home that aren't otherwise there, again, disrupting your routines. And let's not forget uh, the biggest, one of the biggest culprits is our change in dietary habits, right? Um, we're often eating differently, we're drinking differently. So the extra caffeine we might be taking, the extra alcohol consumption, the sugar, especially for kids, all of that affects our sort of um, our activity level, our ability to focus, and, and some of our judgment as well. Then the other thing to keep in mind is that the December and, and the, I guess, fall and winter is also a time of year where even people without ADHD often run into difficult difficulty with their uh, emotional and, and mental wellness. We know that our, um, our patients get more depressed and more anxious in, in, the, in the sort of winter season. So if you add to that, that the, in addition to the mood and the anxiety issues, they also have ADHD. It does, um, it does make it a, a, a time for them that, that causes significant struggles. So ironically, it's a time when everybody should be happy and, and festive. But with people with ADHD, both kids and adults, it can be a stressful time. Absolutely. You know, as the saying goes, or the song, it's the most wonderful time of the year, but it sounds like the most stressful time of the year for those individuals who are experiencing or have been diagnosed with ADHD, and perhaps even worse for someone who has yet to be diagnosed with ADHD. What are some of the symptoms of adult ADHD, Dr. Parhar? So the symptoms, um, generally when we think about ADHD, there are three sort of big types. Um, we often think when you're thinking about kids with ADHD, especially but with adults too, you often think about the hyperactivity. So you think of um, children or adults that can't sit still and they're and they're hyper and they're, and you know they're they're um, restless and so forth and and they're extra energetic, I guess you could say, and that's more the hyperactive uh, type. Um, and then the other type, the second type, is inattentive, which is a lot more common in adults. This is the inability to stay focused on a task, the inability to keep attention. Um, easily getting distracted, not following through with activities. Um, and so and, and that's the second type. And the third type is a combined. There are adults and children out there that have both the inattentive and the hyperactive. So you can imagine that, especially during the holiday season, with the hyperactivity, we've now escalated that, as I said earlier, with all the stimulation and the excitement. And then the inattentive um, type is, is extra problematic during the holidays um, because if you needed structure and organization, like I said, there's lots of social time and events. Those need extra levels of planning and extra levels of um, organizing. And so people who struggle with that otherwise during the rest of the year find that the, the demand is just so high on them um, in, in the December season that, that, it does, um, that, that it does make this time particularly difficult for them. And as I said earlier, if you add a, another layer, which is that you know we spend a lot of time, and I jokingly say this to patients, we spend a lot of time avoiding situations and even avoiding people and family members that we don't see the rest of the year. And for some reason, in, around December, we think we need to visit with them all. So now, you need, now you're adding a layer of challenging sort of social interactions on, on top of the ADHD. So it can be a stressful time. And what would your Christmas checklist be for individuals, adults or children with uh, ADHD, who've been diagnosed with ADHD, so that they can maneuver or navigate the holidays in the in the most optimal way, so that they can enjoy a happy holiday season as well. 
Um, excellent question, and, and it's, it's, the solution isn't straightforward and it isn't easy. Um, there, there's several different um, prongs to this. The most important is planning, planning, and planning. And uh, as I said earlier, without ADHD, the, the holiday season is so busy that the people that do the best or are the least stressed about it are the ones that do plan and organize. So people, adults with ADHD need to focus on that planning even more. So, for example, if it is a holiday trip or a Christmas vacation that you're taking, making sure well in advance you've organized your flights and your hotels and your taxis and, pa- and figured out what you're going to pack and take, um, creating lists, whether it's shopping lists or decoration lists or food lists for dinner, dinner events, but creating lists and checking things off. It wouldn't be um, unreasonable to put up a big calendar with all the events that are going on over the next three to four weeks. There are so many activities, and it's very easy for things to fall between the cracks. Um, so putting a calendar up and sort of saying this is the day that we're going shopping, on this day we're going to the park, and we're going to see the Christmas lights on this day, and you know, Aunt Jane is coming over on this day, and this is when we're opening presents, and this is what we're doing for New Year's. So a big event calendar um, is, is all often a, a useful tip. And then because it is a season, um, whether it's Christmas you're celebrating, Hanukkah, Diwali, or all the other celebrations that go on in December, is that uh, if there is gift exchanging going on, making the list of those people that you want to be purchasing gifts for and, um, and, and not, not missing them. And then you can stay quite organized when you're going to the shopping mall. So planning, 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 absolutely the most important. The second thing to keep in mind, and as, uh, the second thing to keep in mind is that, um, that it's a time that people sometimes say, well, I'm not at work or I'm not in school, or I'm not at university, so I'm just going to chill. You know, I'm, I'm not going to be stressed, and therefore I don't need my ADHD medication. And the kind of medication that most of our patients in our clinics take is called, uh, they're called psychostimulant medicines, and they work very effectively. But this would be a horrible time to think about coming off of them. Well, you, well yes, you don't have to study, and you don't have to check those emails, um, and you don't have to get that project done because you're not at work. Um, not taking your medication during the um, holiday season would actually be quite detrimental. In fact, we, we, we sometimes think about even increasing the medication around this time. Excellent advice. Um, for somebody listening out there who thinks that their spouse, because this would have an impact on relationships, or a person themselves who would think, I don't finish tasks, I get easily distracted, it's affecting my relationship, my job, my life, what would you recommend to them? I would say first step would be to see your counselor, psychologist, um, your family physician, and talk to them about possibly having ADHD. We have lots of tools and assessment um, sort of vehicles to do the assessment. Um, and then if they need to be referred from that first um, healthcare practitioner, most healthcare practitioners are getting better and better at managing this. Back when I was in medical school and residency, we weren't aware of ADHD, especially for adults. We thought we understood it for children and probably not that well even there. Um, but with adults, we, we didn't. But more and more family physicians and, and counselors and psychologists are becoming quite competent in managing um, adult ADHD. And then if the family physician or the uh, counselor psychologist needs some extra expertise, the patient could be referred to a psychiatrist or an adult ADHD center like, like our own. Um, and, and that would, would be important. Marina, I want to highlight something you said, and that is that it does impact relationships uh, um, and especially during the holiday season. I had a patient who um, was going away for Christmas, and I said to him, I said, are you going to be taking yourself off your medication again? Because I knew in the previous um, holiday season he had taken himself off medication for ADHD. And he said, funny you say that, 
He said, the last time I took myself off my medicine, it was a, a stressful time. So my partner said, if you take yourself off the, your medications during holidays this time, only one of us is going to come out of the holidays at the end of it. Um, it was quite, quite, quite stressful. And, and, and it kind of makes sense, Maureen, because, you know, we don't spend 24 hours with our partner or our families except during holiday time. Exactly. Right? Um, so we're often away from them. And, you know, when, you're, when, you're, when you have adult ADHD and you're scattered and you can't maintain focus, it can be quite stressful on the, on, on, in, on the family unit and, and in relationship because you're not connecting, things fall between the cracks, you're late for events, um, you just don't do what you promised to have gotten done. And so it does put a strain on relationships. So, you know, don't strain your relationship. If you are under treatment for ADHD, you know, continue the medication over the holidays. And, and the other thing to keep in mind, just from a holistic perspective, is whatever your strategies are over the holidays to keep well. You know, a lot of people come up with these New Year's resolutions to do things in January, I'll eat better, I'll do yoga, I'll, uh, you know, jog the next marathon. And that's fine. But I would suggest even trying to get bits of that in over the holidays, um, especially for adult ADHD, you know, whether it's um, but whatever routine works during the rest of the year, continue doing those. Keep that structure. So, you know, keep the regular exercise routine. If it's a yoga thing, Pilates, meditation, whatever you do, listening to music, um, you know, taking that, um, that me break, Whatever it is that you normally do, and most of these activities don't take even more than an hour a day, um, but you'll find that that structure really helps with getting through the busyness and the and the extra stimulation that happens over the holidays. Excellent advice. And your website is? Um, uh, www.pacificadhd.com. Um, but if you just, uh, in any search engine, just enter adult ADHD in. Parhar, I'm sure it'll come up. Wonderful. Dr. Gurdip Parhar, Medical Director at Adult ADHD Center in Vancouver and Burnaby, British Columbia, and Clinical Professor at the University of British Columbia. Thank you so much again. Excellent advice. Great. Thank you for having me on, Maureen, and happy holidays to you and all of your listeners. Thank you. Same to you. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.